So as we were thinking about what could we do this summer to get our church aligned and unified during this time of transition, we were sitting up in David's office one day and one person after another said, Acts, 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 Acts. And so that's what we're going to do this summer. We're going to immerse ourselves in this book. Over the next nine weeks, we're going to be preaching a number of different passages from the book of Acts with a lot of different preachers up here on this stage. And I encourage you to follow our reading plan that you'll find in that insert. We're going to be reading through the book together as a church. We also have a daily prayer plan that you can go through as well. So this summer, our focus will be this great book, When the Early Church Was Formed and When the Spirit Came Upon the Believers. So we're going to start this morning in Acts chapter 1. Keep in mind that this is part 2 of Luke's work. He wrote two volumes. Volume 1 was his gospel. Volume 2 is Acts. We shortened the name, but the full name is the Acts of the Apostles. So it documents the disciples, and then in the second half of the book, it documents Paul and all of his missionary journeys. So we're going to be looking through this all summer long. But we're in a time of transition in this passage this morning. Beginning in verse 4, you're going to see that something is about to happen that's going to change the early followers of Jesus' lives. This is what Luke records for us. Beginning in verse 4. It's going to be on the screen as well if you'd like to follow along. Now I read from the ESV, also known as the extra special version. Okay? David was an NIV guy and we would, you know, have our disputes and dialogues. But I'm an ESV guy. Okay? So, just if you're looking down at an NIV and you're thinking, what's he doing? I'm just letting you know. Extra special version. ESV. Okay? And while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which, he said, you heard from me, for John baptized with water. But you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, Will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? And he said to them, It is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. You will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And when he had said these things, As they were looking on, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. So we approach, I want you to imagine that the person that you followed closely for 24 hours a day, 7 days a week, all throughout Judea and the surrounding areas, is telling you that he is about to leave. And he has been your entire life for these three plus years. 
and he's gone, and he's getting ready to leave. Imagine the anxiety and the fear and the uncertainty of what the early followers of Jesus would have been experiencing in this moment. So the book of Acts begins in a time of intense transition. Hint, hint, you and I as well are in a time of transition. Now, I do need to specify, David is not supposed to be Jesus in this passage, okay? He's a great guy, but he's not Jesus, all right? But nevertheless, we can identify with this passage very much. And so Luke gives us here four reminders that we need to sink deep into our hearts this morning. Number one, we need to remember this, that Jesus Christ is the leader of our church. You'll see here that the disciples and the early followers of Christ, the last thing they wanted Jesus to do in this moment was to leave. He had just been raised from the dead. All of the skeptical people that said that he wasn't who he said he was, this was their opportunity to take Jesus door to door, knock on their houses and say, you remember this guy that you said wasn't who he said he was? He's here in the flesh. But what does Jesus tell them to do? He tells them to wait. He tells them it's not the time yet. Now, as somebody who follows Christ, had I been in that room with Jesus, I would not have wanted to sit on my hands and wait around while I have the God of the universe with me. But yet, that's exactly what they're told to do. They're told to wait. It required patience. It required self-control. It required discipline. Patience is not an easy thing for me. If you've ever ridden in a car with me, you know this. Okay? Patience is not something that I'm good at. And there, there's a whole slew of people out there that patience is one of their qualities. It's not mine, okay? I want immediate results. I want immediate answers. I want to attack it head on as fast as I can to get the answer that I need. But the reality is, God doesn't work that way. Now, here's the lesson that Jesus is teaching. He's teaching them and he's teaching us that the gospel is not time-sensitive to our agenda. The Holy Spirit moves among us and he moves in this world according to his own timetable. It's not dependent on you and I at all. We get to be a part of how God is working. And so one of the things that we have to develop is patience. Be willing to wait. Be willing to be content with where God has us. And that's exactly where the disciples are. The Spirit moves as He sees fit in His time frame. There's been some new research that has come out. The Pew Research Center just released some new research regarding trends in world religions, okay? And I want to share some of this information that I found for you this week. Here's a few facts that they've come out with. First fact is that if trends continue by the year 2050, there will be an equal number of Christians as there are Muslims. 
The church in America will shrink from three-fourths of the population to two-thirds of the population. And even now, currently today, four out of ten believers in Jesus Christ live in sub-Saharan Africa. Forty percent of the believers in Christ live in sub-Saharan Africa. So I look at these statistics. I'm not discouraged. I'm not upset. If anything, I'm hopeful and I'm excited because missionaries and people who have been working in Africa for hundreds of years, faithfully sharing the gospel, we are seeing the fruit of their labor. Not according to their timetable. Many have been dead for years, and we're just now starting to see the fruit of their work. So it's a reminder to all of us to faithfully continue to do what God has called you to do. And the results might not be here today. They might not be when we want the results. But God is faithful, and His Spirit works in all of our lives second thing we need to understand that Luke reminds us of is we do not need to presume what's next. As you can see in this passage, the early followers had grand plans for what they wanted Jesus to do. They wanted him to come back and they wanted him to take over and to establish his kingdom on earth and dominate the Romans and everybody to bend down to his will. That's why they ask. Jesus, is now the time that you're going to restore Israel? They wanted power. They wanted fame. They wanted prestige. They wanted Jesus to seek revenge on all those people that had wronged him. And yet Jesus tells them, it's not even for me to decide what has been decided by my Father. Because Jesus teaches us the best example of leadership right here. That true leadership is not about power and influence and fame. This is what Jesus teaches. Leadership is about service and submission and sacrifice. And he models that for the early followers here. Oh, how they would have loved for Jesus to wipe out the Romans, and to establish Israel as the world power of the day. But that's not what he does. That's never what he had intended to do. Because he tells us himself that his kingdom is not of this world. So I don't want us to presume that we know what's next. For our church. I don't want us to bring our own opinions, our own agendas, our own ideas. What I want us to do is what Jesus does in this passage submit to his Father's will and trust in his plan. Later on in the passage, we find out exactly why Jesus told his followers to not leave Jerusalem. And we get this in verse 8. Very well-known verse. You will be my witnesses, but first you must what? Receive power from the Holy Spirit. 
You see, Jesus knew that if the early followers went out and tried to do this on their own, before the Spirit came upon them, they would fail miserably. So he tells them, when you receive the power of the Holy Spirit, then you can go and be my witnesses all over the world. It's a reminder to all of us that you and I, if you in this room are a believer in Jesus Christ, then you have the Spirit of God residing in you. And because of that, you are always on mission wherever you go. You are equipped with everything that you need to make influence in this world. Because the Spirit's already there. It doesn't matter who's up here. The Spirit is within you. So go and be on mission. Wherever it is that you are. Acts 1.8 was not written for pastors. It wasn't written just for missionaries, those that are theologically trained. It's written for every single believer in Jesus Christ. You have the Spirit within you. So you go on mission. So how do you go on mission? If you're not a pastor, if you're not a missionary, how do you go about being on mission wherever you are? Many of you in this room work 40 hours a week, 50 weeks a year. That is more time than you will spend in any other place your entire life. So you're on mission when you go to work every day. The people that you work with, they're not just co-workers. They're made in the image of God. So I would challenge you, take those opportunities and integrate your faith with your work. Let people know who it is that you serve. So you're on mission when you're at work. You're on mission at the ball field with your kids and your grandkids. You're on mission in your neighborhood when you're cutting the grass and your neighbor's outside working on his yard. You're on mission. Everywhere you go, there is never a point in time where you stop being on mission for God. Churches don't grow because you build buildings. Churches grow when the people of God in the building go out and are on mission for Him. I've created these little business cards. Created them a few months ago. And there's a whole slew of them at the welcome desk, all right? So on your way out today, I have about 1,500 of these little business cards, and I want you to take them. Take five, ten, take as many as you think you'll use. So on the front side, it says, you're invited. And then on the back side, it says, join us, Sundays at 930 This is so incredibly easy to do. I'm not even asking you to share the gospel with somebody. I'm just asking you as you go about your day, as you're getting a haircut, drop one off. As you eat at a restaurant, when you sign the bill, drop one in the little fancy envelope. Take advantage of the easy ways to invite people to First Baptist New Orleans. So take about 10 as you go today. And I would challenge you this week and over the course of the summer... To hand these out to people that you know might be interested. 
the statistics tell us that 40%, no, I think maybe it's 60% of people who are invited to church will not decline. It's an easy invite. It's an easy way for us to be on mission. The Spirit is all you need to be on mission for Jesus. And here's what we find. Jesus is standing there. All of the followers of Christ are around him. And he's taken up. And he leaves this world. And then Luke writes for us something very interesting. He tells us that all the followers are standing around. Staring into heaven. Like a bump on a log. Wondering what's going to happen now. I'm sure there was some sadness, some anxiety, some fear about what would be happening. And then Luke tells us that two men dressed in white, angels, get all the people and say, what are you staring into heaven for? In other words, what are you waiting on? Jesus said he's coming back. Now is not the time for you to be moping and looking up, waiting to see what's going to happen next. The angels kind of have to get them in gear, remind them that they can go and be on mission. Now is the time, friends. Now is the time to get to work, to engage To re-engage if you have disengaged. Now is the time where we roll up our sleeves. And we continue to do the work that God has called us to do in this city and in this world. Seventy-six murders in the city of New Orleans so far in 2018. 157 last year. We have schools that pass students from one grade to the next, not equipped to go to the next grade. We have kids that wake up on the streets every morning hoping that by the end of the day they are just alive. That's the goal, is to survive the day. There is much, much work to be done. Not just in New Orleans, but in our state and around the world. There's some psychologists that just released some new information, some new research on boredom. How many of you have ever said before, I'm bored? Okay, I'm about to really make you feel bad and make myself feel bad as well. Now, they were researching the, what we now call Generation Z, or I prefer the term iGen, okay, which is our current teenagers. This is what they researched. Boredom in Generation Z. And what they're finding is that this particular generation is saying that they are bored at an unprecedented rate. And they were intrigued by this because of technology and the access that we have to watching a movie, watching a TV show, texting, talking on the phone, surfing the web, all from the confines of the device in our pocket. So how in the world, they're saying, can this generation say that they're bored? So look at these quotes that I pulled from the research that I found. These are just two quotes. It says, sometimes I feel like I've reached the end of the internet. 
I'll just watch the same videos on YouTube until eventually I'm so bored I start clicking random things on my phone. Here's another one. I was just refreshing my personal Instagram account over and over like I'm so bored, I hate this. Now, let me, this is not just Generation Z, okay? This is many of us. How many of you have ever just scrolled through your Facebook feed over and over again because there's nothing else to do? So I don't want to pick on our current teenagers. This is an epidemic among all of us here. So here's what they found. Here's what the research found, and this is significant. So significant that I need to read it. They concluded, you ready for this? That boredom is not having nothing to do, but boredom is the unfulfilled desire for satisfying activity. Let me say it again. Boredom is not having nothing to do. It's the unfulfilled desire for satisfying activity. As I read that, I thought to myself, God forgive me for ever using the word bored before. I am very fulfilled. And God has a purpose for my life that would prevent me from ever saying that I'm bored. He alone satisfies us. There is no way any of us in this room as believers in Jesus Christ can say we are unfulfilled because the Spirit resides in us. And because He resides in us, we constantly have a purpose and we constantly have something to do. So I have to watch myself now when I use the word bored. And I need to accurately define what it actually means. Just this week alone in our country, two very well-known people committed suicide. On Wednesday, Kate Spade, who I would know nothing about unless my wife told me, was a fashion designer and a very strong businesswoman. Kate Spade collection, I believe, and then she sold her company to Coach. Is that right, ladies? Coach? Anyways, she's very well known, okay, amongst people that are not me, all right? But Wednesday, she was found dead. She hung herself. This rich prestigious designer living in New York City, starting her own fashion line, seemingly having everything that the world would tell you you want ended her life. And then Friday morning I woke up to the news that Anthony Bourdain, celebrity chef, world traveler, been to more exotic places than you and I will ever experience was found dead in his hotel room in France. Two people that the world would look at and say, if I could only have what they have, then I would be fulfilled. Just an aside, I want to share with you this quote that Anthony Bourdain said about our great city. So here's what it says. 
There might be better gastronomic destinations than New Orleans, but there is no place more uniquely wonderful. So I would say New Orleans, with the best restaurants in New York, you'll find something similar to it in Paris or Copenhagen or Chicago. But there is no place like New Orleans, so it's a must-see city because there's no explaining it, no describing it. You can't compare it to anything. So far and away, the best city to eat in, is what he's talking about, is New Orleans. Pretty cool, huh? How many of you ever watched his shows on CNN? Travels the world, has eaten more food that I would like to eat one day than anything possible. And yet, we get this news that another person has ended their life. And it's tragic. It's tragic for their families. It's tragic for us. But I can't help but think that both Kate Spade and Anthony Bourdain, ultimately, were bored. The unfulfilled desire for satisfying activity. They didn't have it. There was something missing. That fame and fortune and food and travel and nice hotels cannot bring you. They're all, at the end of the day, idols that we have to cast down and say, no, what fulfills me is Jesus Christ and Him crucified. And so, I was sitting in a commencement ceremony a couple weeks ago for a local high school, and the commencement speaker stood up to speak. And the essence of her speech centered around this idea of net worth. And I, I don't know her, and her speech was very good, and I'm sure she didn't intend it to come out this way, but I left there thinking, we just told an entire room of 18-year-olds that the goal in life is to accumulate as much money as possible. That the most important thing in your life is your net worth. And I whispered over to Ashley and I said, this is a lie. I know she didn't probably mean it that way, and I'm theologizing, theologizing something that probably shouldn't have been. I get that. Brothers and sisters, we cannot teach our children and our grandchildren that the goal in life is to accumulate a net worth. I've been crucified with Christ it's no longer I who live, but he who lives in me. Christ and him crucified is the goal. That is the purpose that keeps us moving forward. God forgive us when net worth and our toys and our wealth and our accomplishments take precedence over what God calls us to do in this world, which is make disciples. So here's where we are. We're left with Jesus telling us that the Holy Spirit's going to come. And when he comes, I want you to go and I want you to go on mission. 
I want you to be witnesses all over the world. And that's what we're going to be looking at this summer. All the different places that they go to share the good news of Jesus Christ. But as we leave today, I want us to pray. And I want us to meditate on the words that Luke gives us here. To be on mission and to get to work in our city. Letting people know about the good news that can be found through Jesus Christ. We have the best news in the world. The only news that can truly ever satisfy someone. So we need to stay low, humble ourselves, and ask Jesus, how do you want to use me? In my workplace, in my family, in my neighborhood, and in my church. How do you want to use me? Let's pray together. God, we thank you for this book that Luke has written to us, reminding us of the example that the early church was, the encouragement they can be to us, the model they can be to us. God, I know it's over 2,000 years later, but the early church is still a model that is capable of being replicated. So God, we come before you this morning. We humble ourselves. It's not our church. It's your church. We're not in control. You're in control. God, help us to feel this in the deepest part of our hearts that the greatest path for our joy and happiness is obedience to you. God, it's obedience. Forgive us when we make it about anything else. God, bring people to our hearts and to our minds that we know we need to invest in. Neighbors, friends, co-workers. Help us to be intentional in doing that. Most importantly, God, we thank you for salvation that we can find through Jesus. We ask all these things in his name. Amen.